0: Okay, now we are uh, we're coming back now to our series in Ecclesiastes that we left quite a few weeks ago to do our God and My Stuff series. So if you have a Bible, uh, pull it out, and we're going to be back in Ecclesiastes this morning. But before we just jump right in, because it's been a while, and I know some of you uh, weren't here for all of the first part of Ecclesiastes, let me just give you the quick recap, the quick overview, the quick rundown of where we're at with Ecclesiastes. This book in the Old Testament. It's quite an obscure book in many ways, and it doesn't sound a lot like a lot of the rest of the Bible. It's got some interesting views, it's got some uh, statements and thoughts in it that sound like they don't really fit with a lot of the rest of the Bible, but it is a book that is full of wisdom and full of value, if we take it seriously. The, the, The main voice in this book of the Bible is a guy who we are calling the quester. And we're calling him the quester. Most of your translations will refer to him as the teacher. But I think the idea of a quester or, or a searcher or a pilgrim is more appropriate to what he's doing because he's not really standing over us, teaching us stuff. He's walking alongside us. He's coming alongside us to guide us, to lead us. To, 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 he's exploring his own journey of meaning in the world and he's inviting us to listen in and to learn along with him. So when you hear us talk about the quester, that's what we're saying. And by the way, there are, for each of the messages in this Ecclesiastes series, there's study sheets that go along with these messages online. So if you want to jump online and use those for your life groups or just for your own study, they're all there in the main church database system. You can search for those. So we have looked through, we've done three chapters in Ecclesiastes now. And for most of those three chapters, what the Quester has been doing is looking through various areas in life and trying to figure out where meaning can be found. His whole search is a search for meaning. And most of the time, sadly enough, he looks at these different things. He looks at uh, the search for justice. He looks at pleasure. He looks at work. He looks at wisdom. And most of the time, he concludes that these things are meaningless. He doesn't see the meaning in them, He fails to grasp the meaning in And what we're trying to do each time is look at how the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus changes the picture. That the Questa gives us. If you just stay in Ecclesiastes, it can be a pretty depressing and a pretty um, uninspiring read. But as biblical Christians, we want to put Ecclesiastes into the context of the whole story and the whole picture and bring the Questa into conversation with Jesus and ask, how does this look different in view of what Jesus has done? And so we've seen the way in which Jesus has brought meaning into these various things that the Questa looks at and says, they are meaningless. Now, what we're looking at today is Ecclesiastes chapter 4. And so we'll read the first 12 verses of this chapter. Some of these verses will sound familiar to some of you, and some of them are the kinds of obscure verses that you've probably never heard read in a church in your life. So Ecclesiastes 4. Again I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of the oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is the one who has not yet been, who has not yet seen the evil that is done under the sun. And I saw all the toil and achievement that spring from one person's envy of another, This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Again I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Now we'll leave it there for a minute, we'll come back and read the next few verses soon. But one of the, one of the challenges you have in Ecclesiastes is the just seems to jump around all over the place. And his thought doesn't always seem very connected. He's, he's talking about one subject and then he's off on another tangent and he seems like he's all over the map. And you get that a bit in this chapter. What he's done here is is given us three little anecdotes, three little situations or scenarios, but they don't seem to be particularly connected. They're almost like three mini-messages. But as you look closely, there is a common thread that runs through everything he's said so far in this chapter. The first picture that he gives us is a picture of oppression, a picture of people being crushed and beaten down and oppressed. oppressed. He says, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. What he's seen is the poor being exploited by the rich. He's seen a legal system that's corrupt. He's seen the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. He's seen government officials that misuse their power. He's seen people that are beaten down by other people, human beings that trample over other people on their way to get to where they want to go. And he's moved by this. Sometimes you get the impression with this guy that he's just very clinical in his observations. But here he is disturbed. It's moving him and it's grieving. He seems to have a strong sense of justice, this guy. He's troubled when he sees injustice in the world. And oppression is not just government corruption. It's not just slave labor. It is anything, anywhere, anytime one person is trampled down, beaten down by another person. I remember in, in a job I used to have in public relations. We had one of the directors in our company was such an angry guy that he would, ha- he would call people, including me at times, into his office and just have these verbal tirades against them. And he would just tear shreds of us, so much so that it became the job of someone in the office, the guy whose office was next door, to go and close the door so that you couldn't hear what was going on in this guy's office while he was having an absolute go at somebody. It was just awkward. It was tense. And honestly, as I think about it now, it was pretty oppressive. It was oppressive behavior. That, I think, is, is a form of oppression, One person just beating down another person unnecessarily, just as a misuse of their power. You might be able to think of situations where that's been true of you. And then you have the second situation, which seems quite unrelated to the first situation. He's talked about oppression, and then he gives us the situation of somebody at work in verse 4. He sees the toil and all the achievement that's going on, and he sees that so much of what we're doing, so much of our toil, so much of our industry, so much of our achievement, springs from envy. springs from one person's envy of another. We want the lifestyle that someone else has got. We want to keep up with what we see as a comfortable or a preferred lifestyle. And this is where so much of of the constant toiling comes from. And he sees that this vain attempt to try and keep up with social acceptability, just leads people to become workaholics, just leads people to overwork and become more obsessed and more consumed by their work than they need to be. And again, he says, this is just meaningless for people to become complete workaholics just because they're envious of somebody else. And then finally, he gives us the situation. It all comes down in verse 7 to one guy, one solitary man. He says, this is, this is the third thing that he sees. There was a man all alone. He's got no family He's got no one to share his money with, and yet he's just endlessly toiling after more money. He's working and working to try and get more cash, but this guy is absolutely alone. He has nobody to share it with. And the quester is saying this is such a crazy situation. This guy's burning himself out trying to earn more money, and yet his life's devoid of anybody to share this with. And, and, And the guy himself even owns up to this and says, for whom am I toiling? Why why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? Why am I slaving away here, trying to get more and more and more cash, but I don't have anybody to share it with? So you look at these three situations the situation of oppression, a situation of, of work of a workaholic, and the situation of someone who's a completely solitary life. And what is it that's running through all three of these stories? What is it that connects them? I would argue that what is missing in all three of these stories are healthy relationships. In each of these cases, what you see is that they are devoid of healthy relationship. In the story of oppression, the quest is concerned by all the oppression that he sees, but what's really concerning him is that the oppressed have no comforter? They're all alone in their oppression. There's nobody who's comforting, there's nobody who's consoling, there's nobody who's picking them up and encouraging them. When he talks about this situation of the workaholic, what's frustrating him is that all this is coming out of one person's envy of another. That you have people whose relationships are characterized by envy rather than by genuine care and by concern and by love and by goodwill. There's just this envy and there's this spirit of competition that's going on. And then he sees this guy who's all alone with his wealth. He sees a solitary individual, a man who's crying out for relationship. In all three of these stories, you have people whose lives are devoid of real relationship, real friendship real companionship and that is the context in which we're supposed to read the next few verses these really well-known verses in ecclesiastes in verse 9 he says two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor if they fall down they can help each other up but pity those who fall and have no one to help them up also if two lie down together they will keep warm but how can one keep warm alone Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Some of the most famous verses in Ecclesiastes. We had these verses read at our wedding. Lovely verse, except we chose the wrong translation. And when it wasn't the right translation for a wedding ceremony, we chose the New Living Translation. And unfortunately, when the person who was reading these verses out, it went on about two are better than one, two are better than one. And then the way it translated verse 13, this guy said, three are even better. So, <laughs> and people did exactly what you've just done. They just cracked up and the whole thing was very awkward. So if you're going to have these verses read at your wedding, don't use the New Living Translation, all right? Pick a better translation. But they are very famous verses. You know, we love to have them at weddings, and they're lovely verses about human companionship. But they come out of everything that the Quester has just been saying. All these situations where there's a lack of friendship, where there's a lack of relationship. And this is the thing with the with, with speaker in Ecclesiastes. He's not an idealist. He really paints a grim picture of life as it is. And and this is is reality. He just puts in front of us this harsh wall of reality and he says this is what life is like. Sometimes it is oppressive. Sometimes there are people that beat you down and that trample over you for their own interests and their own ends. Sometimes life is just all-consuming with work and we feel like we're just so caught up in it. Sometimes we feel incredibly solitary and isolated, even in a crowd of people. Even with people all around us, we can still feel incredibly isolated. But God's antidote to this situation, God's answer to these feelings of isolation is the gift of human community. Because the rest of life has this dehumanizing effect on us. It robs us of our humanity. And endless work and toil and achievement and and, and envy of other people and oppression by other people, it just ebbs away at us. It just erodes our spirit over time. And what God has given to us in response to this as a way of reclaiming and restoring some of our humanity is the gift of one another. It's the gift of our humanity in friendship. It's the gift of being there for each other. It's part of what it means to be human. It's deeply tied to our identity as being made in the image of God, is to be relational beings. After all, if we're made in God's image, who is God? He is fundamentally relational. Ecclesiastes talks about this cord of three strands, but ultimately God is the the supreme cord of three strands. God Himself, Father, Son, Spirit. He is the ultimate relationship. He defines what love is. God is not the static, unchanging being in the sky. He is this dynamic community of self-giving love that's always going on between Father, Son, and Spirit. He defines that kind of love, that kind of friendship, and then that God makes us in His image. What does that mean? It means that fundamentally we're wired for relationship. It's not about being extrovert or introvert. It's not about what personality type you are. It means that we're simply not designed, we are not hardwired to exist as isolated, solitary beings. Yes, we need time out, I'm a natural introvert, so I need time on my own. I need time by myself to recharge and refuel so I can be around people again. But beyond that, there is a deep human need that each of us have for community, for friendship, and it is part of being made in the image of a relational God, and it's part of being human. It is in relationship. It is when we're relating to each other in loving ways, in caring ways, in healthy ways, that we are most human. When you see a friendship, you're seeing people being fully human. I was talking to a youth pastor once, and he was telling me about a kid in his youth group who was just totally addicted to PlayStation, spent countless hours in in solitary confinement in his bedroom just playing PlayStation, and he was trying to figure out how to wean this kid off the PlayStation and get him into a bit more human community. And there was another youth leader in, in his church who was trying to spend a bit of time with this kid, trying to just coax him away from the PlayStation from time to time and just spend a bit more relational time with him. And the youth pastor said to me, what that youth leader is doing in trying to reach out to that kid, he's trying to help him become more human. And I thought that was a good way of naming the situation. It's not just trying to be a friend to him, not just trying to spend time with him, he's trying to help that kid become a bit more human because there's something human about being in relationship, not just being a solitary, isolated individual and this is so important in our culture where we tend to drift into silos our western culture that so prizes individualism and so prizes the rights of the individual and your individual ambition and you achieving your dreams and your goals in life and of course individual responsibility is important and individual goal setting is important but in the midst of that i wonder whether we've lost this sense of community we've lost the sense of of one another. And it's true in church as well, isn't it? We so emphasize the idea of your personal relationship with God. You've got to accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, and then you've got to cultivate a personal relationship with God. And of course, that's all true. No one wants to take anything away from that. But is there a part of the picture we're missing? That God is not just saving individuals, He's saving a people. That the community of faith is so vitally important, to the formation of individuals, that our spiritual growth is connected to one another, that we're not just pursuing a relationship with God on our own, but we're supposed to be pursuing this relationship with God in community. But our individualistic culture has told us to think of ourselves as isolated, autonomous, separated units who think and act so separately to one another that I think we've lost so much of community. And in the face of that, as Christians, we need to come back to this passage in Ecclesiastes and to the fundamental truth that two are better than one. That community is to be preferred over isolation. That relationship is to be preferred over alienation. That being together is to be preferred over living alone. And I think people are longing for this. I think there's a response, because our culture has so drilled into us the value of individualism, I think there's a cry of the human heart in an individualistic culture for community. And I think people are trying to find it wherever they can. I mean, you think about Facebook. What is Facebook if it's not a search and a cry of the human heart for community? if it doesn't reflect and resemble human beings longing for community and seeking community however they can find it. Isn't that fundamentally... And Facebook, by the way, I'm I'm not bagging Facebook. It's a good thing. Who's on Facebook? Look at you all. I haven't yet joined the Facebook revolution. I'm assuming the day will come when I do. I'll sell my soul to Mark Zuckerberg and I'll join Facebook. And it's a great way of keeping in touch with people and keeping up with each other's news, especially people that you might not see regularly but you think about the way that Facebook is defining our idea of friendship what is a friend according to Facebook somebody that's it could be anyone that's been in your life for any period of time right I mean you could ask someone to be a friend if you have known them for whatever period of time in whatever capacity at any time in your life that's fair game they can they can be a friend really it seems like the word friend the way we're using it in in Facebook is the equivalent of what we would have used to call an acquaintance would that be right? So someone that you might not know deeply, but you're, you're acquainted with them. And so in the Facebook world, that person is legitimately a friend. But you stack that next to how Ecclesiastes 4 describes friendship. It's this idea that when one falls, another person is willing and ready to help them up, to provide real support to provide real encouragement, not just to post something on their wall, but to be there and to help. There's this idea that friendship is about being an advocate for the other person and defending them when they need a voice other than their own, not just someone to post photos on Facebook of you and them together. It has to go beyond that. Friendship means being prepared to be interrupted by the other person. Have you got people in your life like this? You're prepared to be inconvenienced for them. You're prepared to have your schedule thrown out if they are in need. You're prepared to let them intrude in your life. Of course you've got boundaries, but friendship is allowing yourself to be interrupted by another person's need, not just check the Facebook when it's convenient for you. Friendship has to go beyond that. And so much of this, it's not just providing practical help or meals or whatever when that's needed. A lot of it is just showing up, isn't it? Isn't that so much of what, what friendship is? It's, it's the ministry of just being personally present. And again, you think of the way in, in our online internet world that this has been eroded. We don't tend to be face-to-face as much. We don't need to be. You don't need really to go to your bank much anymore. You can do it online. You've got online banking. You don't need to go and see the travel agent to book the holiday. You can do it all online. You don't even need to buy the groceries in the store anymore. You can do it all online. And again, we don't want to go backwards on that stuff. That's good. Good technology, we want to use it. But we have to be aware of what the byproduct of this is. That there can be with these things a loss of community and a loss of personal presence. And even when we are present with each other, have you noticed the way that when we're, when we're catching up these days, we're still texting someone else? Like We're not that comfortable with the idea of being fully present just with one person. We're we're still in this other communication with someone else, still texting that person and checking the emails and checking the text messages that are coming in. Even though if you were with that person, you'd be texting the person that you're with now. We struggle to be just fully present with each other. This is something we need to reclaim and work against. We need to come back to this idea. Two are better than one. I think that's what the quest is getting at with this phrase. He says, if if two lie down together, they can keep warm. I know that sounds a bit racy, but I don't think it's supposed to. I don't think he's not being sexual. I think what he's simply saying is the value of personal presence, of being there together. There is tremendous help in that. There is tremendous support in that. Email only takes you so far. Texting, blogging, Facebook, tweeting, it only takes you so far. There is such a need, and especially in our own culture, to be face-to-face. To be personally present with one another, to be there, to be engaged. Have you got people in your life that you are pursuing that kind of relationship with, that you're being present with them, that you're getting into their world and seeking to understand them at a deep and personal level? Maybe this week the step to take is to message someone on Facebook in order to set up the coffee, in order to set up the face-to-face interaction and catch up with someone that you haven't seen for a while or that you just tend to have an online relationship with in order to pursue personal presence. And as we pursue this kind of presence, you find that that's the doorway to friendships becoming genuinely authentic, to becoming real with each other. How many of you have put up bad photos of yourself on Facebook? You don't tend to. Maybe one or two. You don't do it, though. Why? Because with Facebook, you're always trying to put your best foot forward, aren't you? You're projecting a certain image of yourself. And you're looking at all your friends, and you're seeing all their photos. And you're seeing what interesting lives they have. All the places they've been, the different things they're up to. And you sort of feel a bit inferior, don't you? You feel like they've got these really interesting lives. So you try and put up the cool photos of you doing interesting stuff. So that you sort of feel a bit more like your life's quite interesting and that they're going to think that your life, even though they're doing exactly the same thing, they're feeling like their life's not that interesting either. They're trying to put up the photos to make themselves feel like everyone else is going to think that they're interesting. And on it goes in the great big circle of Facebook. We're all projecting a certain image of ourselves to the world. And we can do this face-to-face as well, of course. But it's so easy to project a persona to be a certain self that's not really our most authentic self Is there someone in your life that you have the kind of friendship that you can be genuinely authentic with? That you can really let the mask down? You can really let your guard down and just tell them how it is without worrying whether they're going to think you're cool or not, whether they're going to find you socially acceptable or not. There's so much pressure to be a certain person. And seem like we've got it all together. Have you got... I'm not talking about a whole lot of people. Just someone. Have you got someone in your life that you can be real with? That you can share your struggles with? And hear their struggles as well. That you can just offload to them. And you might not be your best self. But there's someone that you can be your true self with. There's something that is so cleansing about that. That is so healing We desperately need that. Don't wait until you get into some crisis situation to develop those types of friendships. Because when the bullets start flying, you need that that person. You need that community. And we need them all the time. We need that type of authenticity. Can you cultivate that type of friendship where you're able to be authentic with another person? And I think the deepest and richest and maybe most human form of that friendship is with someone else that shares your commitment to Christ. I'm not saying you only have to have Christian friends. But is there one person who shares your faith in Christ? Because I think that's the ultimate cord of three strands. When you have yourself and one other person centering your relationship around Christ and really giving each other the permission to speak into one another's life. When you place yourself in a position of accountability to someone else and say, I want to give you the permission to ask me some hard questions and to shine the spotlight into my life and when you share with them maybe some areas of temptation that you're really struggling with that you wouldn't mention to other people but you say, I need to be accountable to you because I want to move forward and I want to put this thing to death and I need your presence in my life to help me do that someone that you know is encouraging you, someone that you know is praying for you, someone that you know is available to you, someone who is on the same page as you spiritually, who can speak into your life and you give them open permission to do that. When they see things, all the things that everyone else wants to tell you but they're too scared to, there's one person who's prepared to do it and in return they place themselves in that position of accountability to you and they say, I give you permission to speak freely into my life. That kind of relationship is when we become most human and God is most glorified because He is most central in that relationship. It's the cord of three strands. Anyone want to have a go at breaking it? It's pretty tough to do. And the point is not that the friendship itself is strong because it's got three strands. The point is that each of these strands gains strength because of their unity with the others. The point is that each of us are stronger and more human and more healthy beings in relationship than we are as solitary people. And especially when we have when we have God woven through these relationships, we find our true humanity. These are the types of friendships that scripture calls us to. This is biblical friendship. This is the cord of three strands. Have you got relationships in your life? Have you got one person in your life like this? Maybe for some of you this morning, the first step is simply to pray for God to bring this person into your life. Because I know it's hard. And I know some of you are sitting there thinking, I'd love this. I'd love this kind of friendship, but I don't have that person. Could you take that first step today of asking God to bring them into your life? Of saying, God, I need one person who is going to be, for me, and with me, this cord of three strands, and asking him to create that divine appointment to bring just the right person into your life. Maybe for you, you've got these people, but it's so surfacey, And for you, the challenge is to pursue that personal presence, to pursue that real authenticity, that you're just projecting a certain self. You're being what you think other people want you to be. And maybe today's a day to say, God, I, I, want, I want this kind of relationship, not just, not just a Facebook relationship. Facebook's fine, but I want to go beyond that. And I want to have this deep friendship. Maybe there's one person that this week you can start to cultivate something deeper, something truer, something more human with them than what you've had before. And maybe for you, this is a week to say, who can I place myself in a position of spiritual accountability to? Is there one person who I can say, hey, can we meet on a regular basis? Can we sort of find a rhythm with our lives where we're meeting together face-to-face and really opening ourselves up? Because there's nothing that is going to accelerate your spiritual growth like that. There is nothing that is going to draw you closer to Christ than that type of bond with another person who's got the spiritual authority to speak into your life. Is that a step for you to take this week? To begin praying for or begin seeking or approach someone to become a spiritual accountability partner? for you, someone who's going to be a real guide and a real voice in your life. Whatever step it needs to take, whatever step you need to take, can we cultivate these types of friendships and become these types of people and cultivate these types of relationships, the cord of three strands that cannot easily be broken? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of friendship. We thank you, Lord, that you didn't create us to live alone. You didn't create us as islands, but you created us for community. I pray, Father, for each of us. You just place before us now one step that we can take to move into these types of relationships. God, you know it's a cry of our hearts. It's a craving of the human heart for community. And Lord, I pray for each person here this morning that might just be feeling alone, might be feeling isolated and on their own, God, would you bring just one person into their life who can be a true friend to them? Who can be a comforter and an encourager? Who can be a support? Who can take responsibility and to help carry some of their burdens? Father, for those who are lonely here and feel like they just don't have this type of companionship but would dearly, dearly like it, would you provide it for them as a gift of your grace? And Father, while we wait for that person to come into our lives. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be that comforter to us, that you would be that companionship. And show us how, Lord, in a culture where we just seem to operate as individuals and silos, show us how to move into deep and true and healthy friendships and relationships to become truly human. Father, give us each that cord of three strands. Make us into those cords of three strands, we pray. Connection Point is a joint production between Connection Resources and Shore Community Christian Church If you would like a free copy of today's message please email us or phone us on 0800 90, 30 90. To subscribe to our free podcasts or to listen to the latest message go to connectionresources.org.nz